Well, today on the church's calendar, um, as you entered uh, this sanctuary and entered a different time zone, it is the celebration of the baptism of Jesus. And the texts for this feast day, especially the one in Acts, lead to some theological debates about the legitimacy of Pentecostalism's insistence on a second work of grace that is known by speaking in tongues and about the legitimacy of confirmation. Fortunately for you this morning, we are not going to discuss those debates. <laughs> but if you would like to get into them, uh, Treveka has suggested that you buy my latest book on theology. But if we follow our text this morning, in fact, all three of our texts this morning, we'll see that our baptism is an immersion into history, into a story, into God's story. And the story actually begins before creation. The Apostle Paul said that we were chosen before the foundations of the world. Now, it's a dangerous and costly thing to be loved and chosen by God. As a matter of fact, that's why baptism is a dangerous undertaking, because it means that we first die before we can rise up to the new. Of course, there was, a, there was the Baptist fellow, you know, who complained that even though he had drowned the old man when he was baptized, he kept coming up for air. <laughs> so it is a death, but there's still something left to do. But then this story continues. It continues with the creation by the triune God. The Father said, let there be light. The Spirit hovered on the waters. And as the Apostle Paul says, all things were created by the Son, and nothing exists that was not created by him. And then by the time you get to Genesis 12, you find out that God is going to choose Israel to be the source of blessing to all nations. But you know how that goes. Though Israel is Yahweh's bride, she keeps playing the part of the whore, which is actually the Old Testament's word for what she does. And then we pick up the story as we saw it this morning in Isaiah 43. Babylon had been destroyed the last king, who uh, was a descendant of David, had been blinded before he witnessed the murder of his sons. The temple of Solomon was destroyed. The priesthood ended, and the land of Israel had come under control of distant enemies. First Babylon, and then Persia. And this troubled the Israel that God had chosen they had questions about God's purposes for the world and his special purpose for his people. Why has this happened to us? What's the future now? How long, O oh Lord? Where is Yahweh in all of this? And she continued to ask these questions, even if the prophet Jeremiah had insisted that it was Yahweh's will that Judah spend years of exile in Babylon. As she waited over the decades for Yahweh to bring her home, a Judean community had grown accustomed to living in Babylon. 
And it is to that group that this Isaiah speaks these words, a prophetic message that Yahweh still has some big plans for them. Judah has been punished for the evils that the earlier prophets warned against. Oh yeah, but they are still God's chosen ones and Yahweh still has a mission for them. Yahweh wants to send them, as Isaiah says in 49, 6, a light to the nations in order that Yahweh's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That was the idea from the very beginning. But how could a tiny pack of Judeo-Babylonians, exiles, possibly, possibly do such a thing as that, to impact the whole world for Yahweh, to bring God's shalom, God's peace and righteousness to everyone? Our text this morning offers Isaiah's answers to those questions. Yahweh formed Israel, we learn in verse 1. Yahweh formed Israel. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 2 when Yahweh formed the human being to live and work in God's garden. And so just as Yahweh formed Adam, Yahweh formed Israel. And then our text says that Yahweh names them to announce an intimate relationship, just like God's voice will do in Jesus' baptism. Yahweh will be with them to protect them when they go through the water, as happened in the Exodus. And Yahweh will protect them through fire, just as he did when Jerusalem was destroyed. But the next time that they encounter water and fire, that Luke speaks of in our gospel text, water and fire will save them. Why would God do all this for his chosen? Well, the text is clear. In verse 4, it's because Yahweh was deeply in love with Israel. Even in exile, just as the Father will declare in the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved son. Yahweh has formed Israel to show forth God's glory. And by restoring Israel, she's going to be a light to the nations so that many will come to know the saving power of God and his call for justice and righteousness. And then the story continues. And God's story continues to unfold as we move into the New Testament and Luke's gospel this morning. And now Israel, restored to her land with a new temple, finds herself under domination once again. But this time, not by Babylon, not by Persia, but by Rome. And once again, God's people are asking the same questions that they asked centuries before. Why has this happened? What's our future? How long, O oh Lord? What Messiah? What anointed king in the line of David can come to save us from being under Roman domination? And then John the baptizer appears. Could this be the one that they've been expecting? Could John, the baptizer, be the Messiah to lead them out from under Roman occupation? Not a chance. He insists he's not the one. He tells them that the one who comes as the Messiah won't even be in the same league with him. This one who will deliver Israel 
will actually do it in a way that will surprise them. He will baptize with fire, fire that will save them through purification and through the destruction of everything that is evil. In other words, this time the people are not to place their hope in freedom from their enemies. That won't be the point of this Messiah's coming. Instead, the fiery purification and the spirit empowerment with which these people will be baptized will change the people. It will change them. It will change their own community. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask God to intervene when injustice has been committed, when people are oppressed by some domination, just as this past week, Lake County's Groveland 4 was finally exonerated 70 years after four black men were falsely imprisoned for a rape they didn't commit. But the daughter of one of the four, Carol Greenlee, said she carries no bitterness and neither did her father. He said, forgive them. My father said, hatred, anger destroys you from within. Love brings you out. And the baptism with which Jesus will baptize will do just that. It will liberate from within. But then Jesus does the unexpected. He submits to John's baptism of repentance. That ought to raise some questions. What he's doing is he's identifying with Israel's hopes and their desire to, to make a new beginning with their God. In his baptism, Jesus offers the people a sign of things that are to come. He will share in the disgrace of sinners. Even before he gets to the cross, he'll be identified with sinners because he ate with them. He'll be put down for that. And as the Apostle Paul will say, he became our sin who knew no sin. He became our sin so that we might become his righteousness. So that we might have a new beginning in our association with him because he has associated with us. He can make this happen because it is baptism. Heaven cracked open and the Spirit anointed this King, this Messiah, to be the one who would baptize Israel with the same Spirit. And here's the good news for us today, this morning. Luke continues the story in Acts, and we find that the people that are referred to in Luke 3, the people, also includes people like us. We know this because in our text, in Acts 8, the Samaritans are visited by Peter and John. Yeah, the same John who earlier in Luke 9 asked Jesus if they should call down a fireball from heaven to annihilate a Samaritan village because they had rejected Jesus. That's amazing. That now, these two, Peter and John, witnessed the fire and spirit of Pentecost coming upon these people whom Jews detested. 
The outsiders get immersed into the same community as the people who had been formed by Yahweh before and during the time of Isaiah. And as Paul will put it in, the, in his letter to the Ephesians, Christ came and preached peace to the outsiders and peace to the insiders. He treated us as equals. He made us equals. And through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. And then that brings us to our baptisms, as some of those Gentile outsiders. That brings us to January 13, 2019. Christian baptism is immersion. Even the Greek word baptizo means to immerse. Because baptism is saturation in the life of the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to be totally immersed into this triune God involves total immersion in the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our need, who makes us aware of our sin, who attracts us to Christ, who gives us new life, who fills us with the fruit of the Spirit, and who empowers us for service in the church and for God's kingdom in the world. And just as the Spirit hovered on the waters and was with the Father and the Son in the creation of the world, so that same Spirit creates a new community of the children of God who are now enabled to be God's subjects, to be under His rule as a light to the nations so that Yahweh's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth just as God intended for His chosen people to do from the very beginning. And we are those people. And it gets even better. The baptism, this baptism isn't only immersion in the Holy Spirit. It's immersion into a spirit-created new community, into the church. Because our baptism reminds us that over against American individualism, our salvation is not a matter of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Our salvation requires the participation of the body of Christ if we are to be born anew and mature in Christ. It requires the body of Christ. Remember the story in Mark's gospel about the four fellows who uh, brought a paralyzed man to Jesus down through the roof? You know, the text says this. When Jesus saw their faith, in other words, the faith that sent these four into an action digging through the roof on behalf of their needy friend, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your son's sins are forgiven. I'm reminded of this when I see infant bapti infants baptized. And by the way, Samuel Johnson once was asked, do you believe in infant baptism? He said, believe in it, I've seen it done. And I, so I keep that story in Mark's gospel in mind when I see an infant baptized who is brought to the Lord by believing parents who don't have to come down through a roof, but who have the same care for their needy daughter or son. Because baptism involves a life of faith and repentance on our part, but that life that begins at baptism can't be separated from the community of faith. It's not just an individual thing. And as we've been tracing through the biblical story this morning, this is a community that has a long history. Again, we are baptized into that history like, like we're jumping on a moving train that started a long time ago. 
And that's all God's doing. It's all God's doing. Baptism isn't just something that we do. It is very much something that God does to us. Just as heaven opened up on Jesus when he was baptized. Just as the Father announced his pleasure on the Son, whom he now identifies as his Son, and whom the Holy Spirit now lights on Jesus. And in the same way, when we're baptized, God pours out his pleasure on us and announces that we are now his adopted daughters and sons who are empowered by his Spirit. You know, um, I find that many of my students only see one side of this equation, the human side, the human initiation in baptism. In fact, many of those who have been baptized as infants who are my students want to be baptized again, even though there's no biblical precedent for a second Christian baptism. Because they say they don't remember their first baptism and it didn't mean anything to them. But by way of analogy, I suggest that they also don't remember their inoculations against measles and mumps and chickenpox as infants. And that that inoculation didn't mean anything to them at the time. But I remind them that was what was done to them protected their bodies from disease and contributed to their physical health. In the same way, the fact that they got to the point in their lives that they desired to reaffirm their identification with Jesus may be an indication that something actually happened at their baptism that brought them to this point because God was up to something when they were even infants. It wasn't so important that they remembered their baptism. What was important was that God remembered their baptism. In other words, it may not be so important that we get the order right, you know, faith, repentance, baptism, but simply to remember that baptism is intricately related to our repentance and faith because both, all of this is lifelong essential characteristics of the Christian faith. In fact, Though baptism may not be necessary for our salvation, it is essential for our salvation. And if you don't believe me, then believe Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost when he was asked, what should we do to be saved? You see, one of the reasons it's essential, and this is so important at this time of Epiphany, is that it demonstrates that God forms his people through practices and through the mundane material reality of the world that God has formed. God meets us in and through the waters that he made in the first place. And God takes mundane bread and wine, processed grain and fermented grapes, and makes them become for us the body and blood of his son. In other words, the Christian life is not simply some inward subjective experience. It's not simply some pious feelings. It's not some super spirituality. God meets us and deals with us through that which we can see and feel bodily. And if you don't believe that, just remember what season launched us into Epiphany. The celebration of a God who came to us through cells that multiplied in Mary's womb. God with us in human bodily existence. 
Now, if you understand that, you're a better theologian than I am. I don't get that, all right? But I stake my life on it. And so baptism in wet molecular water symbolizes that we're not left lingering in a spiritual world of feelings and thoughts, but that we have plunged into a real tangible world of water and soil and creatures and human bodies, and that is in part the very tangible aspects, what are the very tangible aspects of our worship remind us of. The kneeling that puts us in a bodily posture of repentance, the open hands that symbolize that we receive God's gift of salvation, let alone the open hands by which we receive the body of Christ as we come to take the bread and the wine and the bread by which we feel the touch of Jesus in our hands and our throats. Baptism reminds us that God floods his creation with his presence. And if we can't find God in embodied existence in the world that he has created, then we will not find God anywhere else. This is where God meets us. This world. And so may we be attentive this next week. May the meaning of our baptism remind us this coming week that in this very physical world that God has created, and in the story into which we have been immersed, God is present, pouring out his blessing on us as he sends us out to follow the Christ who identified himself with us sinners in his baptism and chose us as his people to be light to the nations so that Yahweh's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. How is that going to happen in and through your life this coming week, in your very embodied life in this world, as you go into this world as a chosen and loved and immersed people of God? Amen.